Thank you very much for your kind introduction, uh, Professor uh, Komas. And I'd like to thank uh, the DIJ for giving me this opportunity to present my work uh, today. Um, <coughs> my talk is entitled, Who Will Care For, for Me When I'm Dead? <laughs> this is a major concern among uh, older Japanese persons um, I uh, uh, worked with uh, and uh, in m mostly in the Tokyo, greater Tokyo area. So these are older urbanites um, who uh, migrated to the Tokyo area uh, during the booming Japanese economy during the 50s and 60s and then now they are aging and thinking about uh, their um, uh, ending and also beyond. Um, I got interested in um, the death and, and death rights um, about around um, 2000 and then at one conference I gave a preliminary exam, um, presentation on this topic and a colleague asked me, so why are you so interested in uh, the dead? dead? <laughs> and I, I was very interested in the topic but I did not have the right answer. And then later on, uh, right after this book came out, then I had another opportunity to talk to, not to a colleague in anthropology, but I had a chance to go to a party <laughs> with uh, different kinds of professionals. And the person who sat next to me was a um, spouse of a uh, editor of a major publisher, and he, he asked me exactly the same question. I said, oh, I specialize in death and dying. And he said, why are you interested? That sounds interesting, but why did you get interested in this topic? And my answer was, actually, I really like to see, um, I see life when I hear people talk about death. And that's why it, it's really interesting, because you know people thinking about graves and what will happen, what kids will do, uh, whether it's convenient, it's, it's about life. So that's, uh, uh, I hope up by the end of this presentation, you will see why I find this topic uh, quite fascinating. So begin with a, uh, uh, just a short introduction uh, of this, one of the informants I worked with, um, Rata-san. Um, I plan to have my cremated remains scattered on the mountain, a 74-year-old man living in Tokyo told me. The interment of cremains in a family grave is the norm in contemporary Japan. What does it mean to choose ash scattering ceremony in this society? And in what social, cultural, and demographic context did this new practice um, develop? So in this lecture, I'd like to um, examine why my research participants uh, chose ash scattering, which is a relatively unusual practice, and what meaning they found in this uh, new practice. A number of scholars have examined the effects of um, um, social and cultural uh, factors, the changes on uh, new, uh, the development of new uh, mortuary practices. And in, in a Japanese context, many scholars have examined the effects of urbanization, commercialization, mobility, demographic shifts, changing family and community relations on death rights, especially in post-war post Japan. 
Um, the list is pretty long. I can uh, go on, but uh, uh, in the in outside Japan, uh, there have also been studies on changing death rights. Um, interestingly, a, a very large number of British scholars seem to be interested in death. It's quite fascinating when you do the keyword search, and the whole mm, range of uh, uh, works are done by British, mainly sociologists, but also people working in uh, some medical anthropology uh, as well as um, religious studies. Uh, among them, British sociologist Tony Walter um, has examined this rise of new mortuary ideals uh, known as death in one's own way. Uh, he termed this as uh, revivalism, the revival of death. Um, it's, uh, his work is in, uh, along the lines with other historical works uh, done on changing death rights, for example, by uh, Philip Arias and also Norbert Elias. Um, so, um, Tony Walters looking more at more contemporary changes uh, he found in um, um, death practices mainly in England and saying, okay, well, uh, this really reflects the declining uh, influences of religion and this is in a secular society, people's ideals on death change and also the rise of individualism. Uh, so people are thinking about their personal uh, choice uh, and the personally meaningful death. Uh, so that is a, uh, the work uh, fairly uh, respected in the, in the area uh, studies of death and dying. Um, all these previous studies are very important in uh, uh, giving us a picture of how society change over time and how death practices change over time. However, they don't always tell us um, why certain people choose a new practice at one point and other people don't. So for example, this ash scattering ceremony I'm going to talk about today that was developed because of a variety of reasons and societies uh, changed, so therefore th there is this new practice. But then look at the Japanese people, and very small number of people are pr uh, have chosen to have this uh, ceremony uh, ceremony conducted. So, so what are what are uh, what's producing these variations? Some people go with so-called traditional, quote unquote, or conventional uh, Buddhist practices, and other people are turning to this new practice. And so the studies focusing on society as a unit of analysis is not, I mean, it's important. On the other hand, it's also important to look at individual uh, choices and the structural factors change, uh, shaping the individual choices. So in order to do that, uh, I have focused, used age uh, status, focused on age status and also not just age status of individuals, isolated individual, but a cohort. Uh, analysis to see a group of individuals belonging to a, a particular kind of cohort going through different kinds of life changes, uh, uh, sort of, you know, positioned to uh, face this social change and as a consequence choosing a particular um, mutually practice. So before diving into that uh, aspect of um, cohort analysis and so forth, I'd like to briefly introduce uh, the death practices in Japan and um, just to illustrate some of the basic points. 
Um, Buddhist rituals are very, very common, uh, also normative. Um, some scholars estimate that about 99% of the funerals are Buddhist. Um, this is not based on government statistics. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of curious how they, they got this, these numbers, but the, at least uh, the very famous religious specialist, uh, uh, George Tanabe, uh, he says at least nine, more than 90% of the funerals are Buddhist. So um, again, that's the dominant form. Um, the Stim family, uh, Ie, um, as a social unit, um, responsible for caring for the deceased people. Um, of course, the Ie used to be a legal unit uh, uh, governing the rules of inheritance uh, and how the members should act, but it is no longer legal in post-war Japan, obviously, but it still survives as a social unit especially in the realm of social pr um, uh, memorial practices for the deceased. And uh, it is a caretaking unit for the deceased, and, and it's supposed to contract with the Buddhist institution to take care of the deceased, a Buddhist temple, basically. Priests come and go, but the priests provide the, um, provide the uh, ceremonial care, and of course the family uh, also provides the ceremonial care, as well as you know, make make donations, appropriate donations to the Buddhist institution to uh, keep this um, practice going. So, what's really different about the Stim family? Um, Stim family, conceptually, it is a permanent organization. It doesn't not suppose so. Deceased members, family members, um, conceptually, they stay in the family forever. They are not gone. They're gone, I mean, you know, physically they're gone, but then socially they're supposed to be around forever. So you don't get rid of the deceased family members in that sense in a Japanese organization. Um, STEM family, so therefore, uh, consists of generations of married couples. And of course, you have to start somewhere. So suppose people get married and become uh, the founding ancestors within the STEM family unit. Um, Suppose the couple had three children, only one is required and also entitled to stay. That's, that's why it's STEM. The, uh, the other children are extra children, they have to leave. They are licensed to leave, also they are expected to leave. So who's going to stay in the family? Of course there are differences, but often the male child is preferred. Of course there's been great regional variations and of course historical changes over time. But the one child stays. And often male is preferred, especially since the Meiji period. Um, but it can be a female. Uh, the, if female stays in the family, no, if suppose there are no male children, then the daughter can stay by taking a spouse. So this, the tricky part is the spouse marries into that family. So the, the spouse changes the family membership. And this is called, if in, in case of a woman, married out. So she leaves the original family, and she's no longer a member of the natal family. And so I guess that many wedding ceremonies have rituals of severing the ties with the, uh, with the uh, natal family, sometimes resembling death rituals, almost like you know, cutting the ties so that she's going to be gone. Uh, this doesn't change the fact that she's still related uh, to the natal family, but her fundamental social identity is transformed as a result of marry, marrying into the family. Um, so therefore, um, within the, um, 
uh, only one child remains as, as a successor, and then this person who's remaining in the original family is also expected to care for the older generation and also the ancestors. So that is the basic um, uh, picture, uh, at least that is more uh, surviving to some extent uh, because legally still only one person can inherit the ceremonial assets in a family. Even though after the war, equal inheritance law uh, is you know, about the non-ceremonial assets, the kids are supposed to divide up all the uh, uh, assets. But then when it comes to graves, then only one child uh, can, uh, and also the spouse, uh, will be caring for this uh, ceremonial asset. The other important aspect about Japanese system here is the transformation of the dead into benevolent ancestors. This is not an automatic system. Uh, it's not simply determined by the conduct of the people who are, you know, good people become ancestors. Not always. You have to be dependent on the living for your status to be secure. So, uh, of course, there's a question of belief, whether be people believe that that's going to happen or not. That's another issue. But the assumption is, without the living's effort, the deceased will not be able to reach the state of peaceful rest. So, um, the dead are fundamentally dependent on living. And also, they, once they are transformed into benevolent ancestors, they are also supposed to be able to help uh, the deceased, watch over the living, and that's, that sort of thing. So uh, the central to this transformation of the ancestors are two devices, a family altar, that is a place where the deceased are enshrined at home, and also a family grave, where generations of married couples, ashes, or remains are buried uh, in the um, single uh, plot or uh, grave. So these are the pictures. This is a picture of a fairly common uh, Buddhist uh, altar. And then this is a uh, family temple accommodating uh, multiple uh, graves. And this is a fairly typical newish uh, family grave introduced after, uh, once after the cremation became much more common in many parts of Japan. So uh, what will then happen to people who do not receive care from the living? Um, this is uh, supposed to be a fairly miserable state. And uh, even people who do not believe in spirits and ancestorhood or Bud you know, uh, Buddhism, they still don't feel that this, this is the fate they want. They feel that it's, you know, nobody's looking after your grave. That's a very, very negative, culturally negative uh, state. So uh, uh, permanently single in this system, the kinds of people who are likely to lack care when, once they're deceased are permanently single people childless couples, people with married out daughters but no sons, um, partly because this is a very much a gendered system. Um, I already told you that the boys are preferred to be culturally uh, preferred successors or caretakers of the grave. Um, so suppose the family has you know, two, two uh, girls and no sons, and then the girls both marry into the husband's families, and they are responsible for caring for the husband's um, family graves. And they're also entitled to be buried there. So that means no one is left in the original family to care for the deceased. So, they, you know, people might have kids, but then they might not have culturally preferred caregivers uh, for the grave. 
So, um, so this is the context, uh, cultural context, social and cultural context in which this particular new practice of scattering ashes um, uh, has to be considered. And I should also add briefly that the, I, I said that the dead are fundamentally dependent on the living uh, to be transformed into venerable ancestors. This is also means real social and also financial burden because you're supposed to, with the Buddhist institutions, often you have to um, perform up to, uh, up to 33 or 50 years after a person's death. Memorial services have to be um, uh, conducted. Uh, so that means, you know, it's it's not done, the funeral is only the beginning of this long ritual transformation that deceased have to go through. And of course it's conventional, well, I don't really believe in it, but then if we don't do it, <laughs> then maybe neighbors will say something. So there's definitely social pressure uh, uh, about doing it, and also, you know, people generally feeling not feeling so uh, uh, great about themselves if they are not able to do this. So the Grave Free Promotion Society um, is a citizen's organization which was uh, founded by Yasuda Mutsuhiko, uh, who is a former Asashimbun journalist. And um, um, so, um, and they are the first citizen's sort of organization that um, basically um, Designed, designed a scattering ceremony and made it possible for people to come to them to have scattering ceremonies conducted. And this was when it was established in 1991, uh, it was, there was still a debate about whether this practice was legal or not. So I guess that uh, by going through this organization, a lot of people felt that this was a socially legitimate way of having the ashes uh, scattered uh, in nature. Um, so the society, therefore, really uh, worked hard to um, to uh, um, uh, to make sure that people sort of thought that you know it's a uh, not illegal. <laughs> I'm saying it's not illegal because uh, the technical truth is that there are no regulations on the Ministry of uh, Health and Welfare. Um, in those days, uh, regulations about death and burial. That there, there are national laws about burial and cremation, but they didn't really expect that people be scattering the ashes, so they don't say anything about the scattering of ashes. It is illegal to throw away the ashes. So if you throw away the ashes, uh, then it is illegal. However, the scattering, according to this organization, if you reverently uh, return the ashes to nature, it's not throwing it away. So therefore, they said as a ceremony, it's, you know, if you uh, reverently, you know, uh, venerate the deceased remains in, uh, in the grave, that's, that's fine. It's also fine to return the ashes to the ocean, for example, uh, and it's just a different form uh, of treating. Uh, the deceased remains. So that was their legal uh, <laughs> argument. And this Yasuda-san is a todai-educated, highly <laughs> intellectual uh, person who used to be very active in water conservation issues. So he has a very secular attitude. Ash is, uh, you know, already uh, uh, cremated. It's completely uh, 
uh, hygienically speaking, it's completely fine to return the ashes to, uh, to nature. So that's his stand. So he developed this, uh, also invented this term, Shizenso, a natural mortuary practice. And uh, it's a non-profit organization since 19, 2002, and uh, approximately uh, 15,000 members uh, in uh, 2011. And as of... Uh, a few years ago, I think they they probably scattered over a little over 2,500 people by now. Uh, maybe maybe more. I guess last time I heard was 2008. So it's it's a sp very small organization, but pretty big impact in the sense that until then, uh, death uh, Buddhist priests as well as funeral homes were monopolizing death ceremonies. And so this is a sort of a civic challenge to the uh, monopolization of these ceremonies. So you, in order to really um, uh, explain uh, why this particular movement was developed, um, we can really learn a lot more by looking at uh, what I call memorial care resources. So what do you need to continue the conventional death practices? Um, well, in order to keep uh, a family grave, um, veneration of the ancestors in a family grave, of course you have to have a grave or grave plot, of course you can buy one, um, but the it is family based, so these ceremonial assets, especially in post-bubble Japan, it's pretty expensive. Uh, also, it's supposed to be passed on from generation to generation. It's not just for uh, one person or couple, but it's the assumption is it's going to be passed on to your, the next generation. So you have to have a successor to actually purchase something like that. Uh, especially in Buddhist organizations, then you say, oh, you know, do you have a family who's living with you and you don't have anybody close by, then they might turn you down. Um, that's one thing. Uh, from the user's perspective, if you don't have a, a child who's likely to use it and also take care of it, why spend twenty or thirty thousand dollars on this kind of uh, ceremonial asset, especially in the Tokyo Greater Tokyo area? So you know, of course, uh, it's a consumption choice as well. Uh, uh, as well, but if you have a descendant and you know that uh, your child is going to take care of it, then that's another issue. So domestic altar also is. Um, not an individual thing, but it's supposed to be passed on, and again, it can be very expensive. <laughs> uh, um, there are apartment-sized cheap ones uh, around, starting around $200, but the expensive ones, of course, huge ones. Uh, it's a big investment. And human resources also necessary because um, you, s you have to have somebody to c take care of those assets and also ancestors enshrined in there. So preferred caregivers are married adult son and his spouse living close to his parents in their family grave. And think about it, in Tokyo, how many people <laughs> might actually have this sort of preferred successor? Um, that's, that's, the, that's a good question. So if you live in a home, rural hometown and your son happened to have a job in the local area and you know, got married and have kids, and okay, that's that's this family is very much likely to continue the practice, uh, but you know, we might not have a dependable caretaker. So here, um, I'd like to draw your attention to um, cohort, different cohort groups. Um, 
the demographic transition, of course, the first and the second tra demographic transitions, I'm uh, basically talking about the uh, uh, first demographic transition here, uh, also later the second demographic transition. So uh, societies tend to go through various stages and then the, uh, uh, they tend to uh, have uh, uh, they they tend to first have high birth rate and high mortality rate, and then the birth rate uh, mortality rates come down. Also, birth rates come down, and then people tend to have a smaller and smaller families as time goes on. Um, so, um, in the Japanese context, I guess I'm following here Ochi uh, uh, Emiko's uh, work. Uh, sociologist worked on the family issues. Um, and she's also basing her uh, discussions on some of the demographers, uh, Japanese demographers. But uh, people born before 1925, uh, uh, high birth rate, many, many children are born in a family, but then many die, especially in infancy. They don't always grow up to be adults. Uh, but the transitional period, you know, uh, the mortality rates come down, but the birth rates still tend to be a little higher. So the result is this generation or the cohort tends to have a large number of adult siblings who all, you know, the many, many siblings, uh, and then they tend to grow up to be adults. And then the third group, uh, people born after 1950 in Japan, then small number of kids, and people do not expect their kids to, you know, die in their infancy. They plan to have a smaller number of kids, uh, of course, uh, Japan and many, many post-industrial societies around the globe have this pattern now. So, um, so what, what's the relevance here uh, of this division, the cohort groups? It's still pretty broad groups, and I'm going to get back to that issue later on. But ash scatterers, the majority of uh, my research participants belong to the transitional cohort. It's not the perfect representation because at the time of my research, most of them were born, I, I didn't have so many people who were born in the 20s, late 20s, many in the 30s, uh, some, some in the 40s. Uh, so, uh, and baby boomers, as you can tell, baby boomers were not really included. I think I had one baby boomer, but <laughs> that was too small <laughs> for the sample, so I don't discuss baby boomers at all. Uh, so most of the people belong to this group, and majority, I guess, were urban uh, population, urban elderly who were moved from their rural areas when they were young. They got married, aging, uh, beginning to age, uh, at the time of research between... Uh, um, and the established, they established nuclear family households, so they have a lot, many, many siblings. So they were licensed to leave their hometown. They, they weren't abandoning their, their aging parents in the grave because they had a married uh, adult sibling who was residing uh, with or close to the aging parents in their hometown, taking care of the grave. So they are licensed to leave, but then they were on their own. They are supposed to establish their own grave when they pass away. They, of course, participate in the rituals to care for their parents or ancestors in the hometown grave, but they, they are not entitled to, to be buried there. So that's the situation. Many of them have to buy a grave when the time comes, have many adult siblings. They didn't have any trouble taking care of their uh, ancestors' rights uh, in their hometown. However, they got married. They have a very small number of children. This is the, um, they, they, 
were very much, you know, into this urban new middle class lifestyle, small number of kids, invest in the kids, uh, educate the kids. Um, so um, very small number of children. So the average of two or maybe possibly three. So what, what are we looking at? Two kids in the family? Who's likely to have a son who's married <laughs> and living close by? So the it's uh, you know it's pretty tough to to secure that kind of a successor. Um, the simple with the average two kids, then the simple with the simple calculation, uh, twenty five percent of the families have have two sons, right? Uh, and then uh, and twenty five percent of the families have two daughters who are likely to be married out. So therefore, many many people who have kids, but then no sons in the family. Um, so the other issue, of course, I'm going to get to that. But uh, the, those group, this kind of group of cohort, group of key people were aging since the 1990s, and then that society was established in 1991. And that society is not the only uh, group dealing with uh, the demographic shifts uh, um, and the ways of, you know, venerate, trying to uh, figure out the way of venerating uh, the deceased in uh, Japan's childless society. There are other uh, possibilities. I'm going to get to that a little later. But so reasons for ash choosing ash scattering. So what are the reasons? The mo very common answer, ah, I don't have a grave. I have a grave in the hometown, but my brother's taking care of it, and he's going to go there, so I don't have a place to go. <laughs> so I thought about buying one, but then, you know, so the discussion goes on. I don't have a grave. So again, this is a typical situation where they, are lo they have lots of, many, many adult siblings, and then the extra children tended to come to the urban areas to establish new nuclear families. So they're the first generation in the, their, new, um, their STEM, family STEM families. And I have only married daughters. That's the other common, uh, uh, common uh, response. So they don't have a culturally preferred caregivers. Okay. So this one is interesting. I didn't expect this when I was con <laughs> before conducting research. I, I have a son, but <laughs> so what's the problem with the son? Uh, you, you expect that if there is a son, then the son can take care of the grave. So that's what I, th I thought. But then you listen to the stories and then, oh, I have a son. Uh, he's in his 40s and he's still with living with us. He's not married. And He's not even dating anyone. <laughs> so he's, you know, basically the parents were looking at him and, okay, he's 45, not dating anyone, not no girlfriend. So, okay, I don't think this is happening. He's not getting married <laughs> and having kids. Uh, so, you know, we can buy a grave. We can afford to buy a grave. We can pay $30,000. However, what's going to happen in the next, next generation? You know, I'm sure you know the son will take care of the grave, but what will happen after that? So that's the the logic, I guess. The consumption choices made, uh, of course, it's too expensive in that context uh, because you know this person can see that um, uh, grave will not be passed on to the next generation. So um, the majority of the informants I talk to in these organizations uh, are not really like, oh, I don't like Buddhists or I don't like uh, interment, but more to try to solve a problem, memorial problem. The, the existing normative program doesn't quite work for them because of their family situations. So, uh, and then finding this solution, and then also, uh, uh, also listening to the other members' narratives and 
beautiful nature, you know, the descriptions of beautiful nature uh, they are returning to and so forth. So they, they do uh, have a real sort of a structural issue here uh, and also uh, uh, not just, just ideological reasons, but then they feel the need to do something about their situation because the uh, normative practice doesn't really meet their needs. So um, ash scatterers therefore tend to lack memorial care resources, uh, both uh, either material or human or both, fairly commonly both. And the people, very few members I met actually have both uh, resources, material, uh, have a grave and a culturally uh, preferred successor who's already married with kids. So um, this is ash scattering ceremonies. Uh, also convenient for, uh, therefore, people with limited memorial care resources, uh, also in relatively inexpensive, uh, starting around a thousand US dollars, I guess it's Jumang uh, Eng. Around, I think it, the price came down. Uh, many, many of the things are cheaper now in Japan, uh, <laughs> at least in 10 years ago. Uh, and hair, uh, I recently got a haircut that the price really came down dramatically in some of the <laughs> hairstyling shops. But this was sort of beginning of the kakaku hakai <laughs> the, uh, um, uh, in the world of funeral practices. So, you know, pretty inexpensive individual membership. This is significant because, again, the family grave system is based on uh, the continuity uh, of the STEM family organization. And it's easy to maintain. You don't really acquire a spot, so uh, therefore you don't have to go and do the weeding and that sort of thing. Uh, no successes necessary. So, so this really uh, match the needs of the people who do not have enough resources. And some people say, oh, you know, it's cheap, that's why. But again, Something is cheap that is uh, uh, evaluated in a social and cultural context. So consumption choice, to some people, 30,000 is expensive because they can't pass it on to the next generation. But you know, 30,000 might be a reasonable thing if you, know, you, you assume that your uh, descendants will take, take care of uh, the grave for five, 10 generations. So, uh, so I just let me point that out like to share some of the photographs. So the scattering ceremonies occur both on land and then at sea. And this was a, a, a boat, uh, which is no longer used for scattering, but at the time of field work, this was a very uh, attractive boat, which used to be owned by Winston Churchill, the famous, <laughs> uh, famous uh, uh, person. Anyway, uh, so this is, uh, was rented for scattering. And as you can see, nobody's in black sort of funeral costume. So the society uh, encourages people uh, to, uh, almost instructs people to, to wear casual clothes. And then they say, oh, the ship might rock, so don't wear high heels and no black suits. And more. so people look a little bit like they're tourists, but then you can spot them right away at the stations because they look a lot more nervous. And they also have large sort of offerings and things like that, so they have a lot of luggage. And um, fairly common to offer liquor. You can see that um, some people might can't tell what, what that is. But Camus, that's Napoleon. That's a very expensive kind of liquor. Uh, it's pouring the liquor, wine, beer, uh, rice wine. It's very common. And of course, uh, offering uh, liquor at the few grave and also a typical family altar. That's a fairly common uh, practice. People don't. I don't. I didn't see people throwing food into the water. I saw people just 
offering flowers, like a petals often in at sea, and then the pouring liquor. And the, on the mountain uh, ceremonies, I saw people also pouring water, and, the, and I, that was um, I didn't see uh, people pouring water at uh, at the sea, uh, ocean ceremonies. So what do people see in this journey? People talk about scattering ceremonies as a way of returning to nature. So uh, it's a sort of fairly romantic image, uh, but also there are multiple images of nature uh, being constructed uh, through a variety of narratives. Uh, one fairly common image is a, a nature as um, sort of conflicting images, but uh, one image is nature as target for preservation. Um, so um, this is related to the fact that this president, Yasuda, uh, used to work as a freelance journalist specializing in water conservation. Um, he once investigated developmental projects destructive to forests that supply drinking water to Tokyoites. And he thought about obtaining the forest, preserving it, and using it for scattering. And this project, Yasuda-san thought, would allow Tokyoites to secure drinking water, since he's very, very practical, uh, and also save space and money they spend on, on graves. So this idea became the seed for the GFPS movement. And by naming this their scattering Shizenso, uh, natural motorly practice, the society also makes scattering a conservationist act and discourages uh, they, the society claims that they discourage the destruction of nature caused by construction of new cemeteries. Again, whether they actually really contribute to this, uh, um, to the environment or not, that's uh, the peop some people have questions about that. But in my view, I it, I don't find it all that important. I I find it important that this image is attracting quite a few uh, educated middle class uh, followers. Uh, of course, there are uh, people who cannot afford to buy a typical grave and turn to the society because it's you know fairly inexpensive. But uh, there are plenty of you know many people who can afford to buy a grave but still find this attractive and this environmentalist focus is definitely a plus uh, in in the views of uh, some of the followers. Another image which is slightly different, or almost uh, conflicting with the previous image, is nature as mother. It's a very much more romantic image, Contra contrary to the view of vulnerable na nature that requires human protection. The nature is also seen as a nurturing force of healing. So President Yasuda, through the interview during our interview, said the nature is mother to him. The many members wish to sleep peacefully embraced by nature, and interestingly, they largely ignore nature's destructive powers to humans, such as, of course, the recent earthquake. You can see that nature's not always kind to uh, humans, but I guess you can sort of see the urbanites imagining of very much uh, images of comfort um, through their narratives. Another interesting uh, aspect about this nature narrative is nature as a place of origin. And this came up again and again. Um, we find yet another image of nature as a place for return in um, evolutionary and social sense. On one level, nature is seen as a source of all life, where we all come from. So all humans and creatures come from uh, nature. The sea in particular is seen as where life originated. On another level, nature is considered a place of social origin. Many wish to go back to mountains, rivers, and seas in their hometowns. 
So it's a little bit like homecoming uh, at the end of their life. You know, they came from rural areas, moved to urban areas. They worked hard. They had family. You know, well, they bought a house, and then they want to go back to nature in their hometown. S the other image here is nature as circulation of life. Members maintain the image of nature as a place where life circulates and imagined remains to turn into other form, forms of life. A woman reported, I told my grandchildren that they should call me when they see dandelions flower. So this in, the, in this case, the, the narr narrator is interested in having her ashes scattered on the mountain. Hamada-san, a 67-year-old woman, told me, my husband loved tuna sashimi when he was alive. He used to say that he was going to become food for tuna by having his remains scattered at sea. <laughs> so this is uh, uh, Hamada-san. Uh, she was 67 years old at the time of the interview. So you can sort of see the playful, almost playful image of, okay, well, I ate a lot of tuna, so then I will <laughs> give myself to tuna. <laughs> uh, I, uh, some, some religious studies scholars might see the image of regeneration or even rebirth in this, but I talked to, the, to, the, uh, uh, talk to Hamada-san, and she, she didn't say that she, he didn't say that he was going to be tuna. He just said he was going to be esa tuna, <laughs> food for tuna. So I don't think he was becoming tuna, but <laughs> contributing to tuna's uh, uh, well-being. Uh, so uh, that's uh, uh, fairly another... Uh, common image and I uh, at a scattering ceremony I attended and uh, um, uh, people were scattering the ish, uh, ashes of the grandfather and then said oh now grandfather is already good fertilizer for all these trees. So you see some uh, image of regeneration or circulation or maybe practical way of nurturing nature. So it's not just you know there's some, some sort of reciprocity there. Um, Again, nature as the object of aesthetics, pleasure, uh, which is a very, again, a little bit more romantic image. The society's members construct scattering sites as picturesque romantic scenes of aesthetic pleasure. Mount Fuji, a cherished art subject of Japanese er art, is recurrent theme in discussions regarding preferred scattering sites. So on clear day, uh, one coordinator, uh, volunteer, working uh, with the people, scattering ashes, said on a clear day, the view from here is wonderful. You can see Mount Fuji. So people often talk about uh, beautiful mountain and the singing birds and so forth. Nature as a place for escape. This is a little slightly different, much more of a, uh, imagining nature as a place uh, that is peaceful, uh, but also a way of escaping oppressive realities uh, in social life. Especially gender is uh, came up as a major uh, factor in the narratives. An unmarried professional woman reported, I would like to have a sense of release when I die, and this is not an unusual uh, comment from a woman, uh, especially single women. And, uh, Again, also, it is not uncommon for women in unhappy marriages to get divorced after death and have their ashes scattered in nature away from their uh, husbands. And they do not want to join their husband or in-laws in the family grave, which is a continuation of oppressive <laughs> situations. So uh, during my fieldwork, only one man said that he doesn't want to be buried with his uh, uh, wife, and mostly women expressing that sort of sentiment. 
ethnicity, uh, difficult, so difficult family situations, relations often sometimes lead to this kind of comment, you know, well, after death I'll be away from my family, I'm going to be by myself, embraced by nature. Ethnicity uh, came up in just a, uh, very rarely, but I think it's very interesting, so I'm going to introduce this. Scattering requires no passport. A war, war orphan, his father was a Japanese military officer and the mother Taiwanese had this expression, you know, it's very difficult to live and then uh, you don't need a passport in nature. So that's again a way of release. Um, regardless of gender, uh, family status, this came up again and again, I do not want to be a burden. Uh, so it's, you know, afterlife is not just about beliefs about what might happen, but in a Japanese context, somebody has to care for the deceased remains, or especially in a, gr in a grave. So it's a real social and also financial uh, the effort expected uh, to be performed by the people who are responsible uh, as, as caregivers. So that fact really makes sort of a, a difference in thinking about what m might happen uh, after death. So I don't want to be a burden, being a burden. So letting a culturally known preferred successor to, to care for the grave. You know, it's not a married out daughter, for example. It's not her share of the work to do it. And so it's considered to be an extra burden. Um, people want to avoid that kind of situation. So those who do not uh, have a married son nearby hope to avoid overburdening their children who are not preferred, uh, preferred caretakers. And they also, uh, they sort of also flip it around and they emphasize their self-sufficiency and attempt to limit their reliance on the younger generation. So, you know, I'll be embraced by nature. Nature is going to look after us. So I'm going to make this decision so that I don't want to overburden my, my children. So, and, but, you know, they don't say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so miserable, but, you know, I rest peacefully in nature. So they, they are constructing this ending and afterlife in a positive light by discussing positive aspects of nature. Okay, uh, deceased-centeredness. Survivors, so how, how do younger people think? It's interesting uh, that the younger people sometimes are more conservative <laughs> than the parents. They might be shocked that parents have chosen a scattering, but the people who are supportive, the children who are supportive of their uh, parents often said, again, employed this idea of filial piety. Filial piety often, of course, is associated with the interment and maintaining the tradition. But they use this idea, okay, this is the best example of filial piety, but, you know, to, to uh, realize my deceased father's or deceased mother's wishes. So doing the ash scattering ceremony for the parent who wanted it is a, a, a you know, way of showing uh, the affection and the support. And they also use flexible memorial strategies. Um, the opponents often describe this ash scattering ceremony as, you know, just avoiding the responsibility to care for the deceased. But if you actually listen to the narratives of the bereaved, then they, uh, quite a few people actually conduct some kind of memorial rites for the deceased. So choosing ash scattering ceremony doesn't necessarily mean to do away with memorial activities later on. Um, Quite a few people actually maintain the, some kind of Buddhist ceremonies, or they might actually do more secular ceremonies, getting together with relatives at a restaurant or hotel, 
Uh, so it's not really like they're just abandoning <laughs> the deceased and that's it, but they do invent many different ways of venerating uh, the deceased. However, uh, when the renowned religionist Yamaori Tetsuo chose scattering, his son objected. He asked his father where he should go during the festival of the dead, Obon. Advertisements of funeral homes also echo similar sentiments. To deal with this problem, the society gives the family a chart showing exact location where the ashes are scattered. That's I thought it was interesting because the ashes won't stay there. <laughs> but almost to address like, oh, okay, this is the location. So this placelessness, especially in case of uh, ash scattering at sea, is considered to be uh, an issue. Uh, but other people are much more flexible and some of the members I talk to, they go visit different beaches to think of the deceased. So they invent personal, personally meaningful memorial rituals, not necessarily depending on Buddhist uh, conventions. Okay, so opponents' views. Um, so members, GFPS members use metaphors of regeneration, uh, return the, of journey, uh, return to nature to talk about their, uh, uh, their ash scattering ceremony. But opponents use different kinds of uh, metaphor, especially of secular garbage collection. They, they criticize us scattering ceremonies as throwing away the ashes, uh, the ancestors' remains. Criticize us scattering as failing to fulfill their moral obligations to care for their ancestors. So from opponents' perspective, this is not a return to nature, but it's throwing away something you have to ca uh, take care of. So again, you can see the sharp uh, uh, differences in how people construct the meaning of this particular ceremonial act. Okay, so some of the major points here. Um, so I, the point I'd like to emphasize here that uh, many members of the GFPS are unable to go with the conventional death rites because they tended to lack some of the ceremonial memorial care resources. So there's definitely the structural factor shaping their decision to join this movement. And they act within the existing memorial structure, but fails to meet, um, uh, they fail to meet their ritual needs, that this system doesn't really meet their needs because, you know, well, what if you have married out daughters and nobody's going to be in the position to care for the grave? So, um, but then they turn to a new practice uh, that allows them to solve their individual memorial problems. So at first, uh, what are we going to do? We can't really buy a grave. It doesn't work for us. They turn to this organization. Um, yet their actions publicly, collectively, uh, 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 question the taken-for-granted memorial conventions and the mutually authority of religious specialists, especially Buddhist priests, and also funeral uh, uh, professionals. So the result is really a public questioning of uh, the established mortuary authority. So it's not really like they're getting together to criticize the Buddhist priests. Of course, there are quite a few members I interviewed all critical of the death industry. But that's not just the only reason driving this movement. There's this uh, structural limitations uh, uh, they are experiencing, uh, which encourages them to turn to this particular movement. Okay, conclusions and further research. So uh, um, 
the choice of ash scattering is made in relation to, but not independent of younger generations when they think about where they're going to go or how they are going, their remains will be uh, venerated. Uh, the decision is made considering the next generation. So it's not the decision made independent of the next generation, but it's intimately related to whether they have available <laughs> people to care for the grave. And in, in the case of people who are, you know, not uh, they, ha they don't have culturally preferred caregivers, then they don't want to burden them. So these are the kinds of things they think about when they make their decisions. So um, it's for oftentimes scholars see individualism often in seen in a negative light. Oh, you know, jibun katte, and they, they sort of just, you know, decide that they're going to do this scattering ceremony. The decision is actually made by considering uh, the younger generations as well. Um, so that's one point. And uh, uh, variations um, discussed uh, between cohorts, uh, pre-transitional, transitional cohort groups, uh, post-transitional cohort groups. I uh, mainly had data on the transitional cohort group members uh, here, and it will be a very fascinating project to do. Uh, you know, what will happen with baby boomers? I didn't have many baby boomers. What kind of, if they choose this kind of practice, how they understand the meaning of the practice and wha what is the driving force? Um, I had a very small number of pre-transitional cohort members in my study, uh, just a few. Uh, but I can still tell you that there's a significant difference between how they understood the practice. The pre-transitional cohort uh, members I interviewed did not have any problems with the resources. They had the grave and they had the son who's married with kids. So it wasn't really a lack of resources, but they, um, these were people who lost ma a majority of their um, uh, cohort members in the war. And all the, you know, well, all my comrades are dead and I don't really deserve to be uh, buried in a grave. So they didn't say scattering is better than uh, interment, but they said they don't deserve to be, in, you know, having this grand grave established. We, you know, they survived the war, uh, they had the family, they had, you know, they saw affluent Japan. This was enough. I don't need a grave. So that was a very distinctive narrative I, I saw in a very small number of people. And transitional cohort members tended to say that, uh, you know, scattering is sort of nicer in a way. Uh, I don't want to go into a dark grave, but you know, it's more beautiful. So that they were much more positive about uh, scattering of ashes. And the other limitation, of course, is there are variations among culturally meaningful cohort units, because these are, uh, uh, I know, um, so, for example, Showa single digits or Taisho uh, people or baby boomers again. Uh, so there are variations within the transitional cohort, and again, that has to be researched further. And of course, again, in rural areas, there are some scattering ceremonies. This is mainly urban movement, uh, but there are some cases of scattering ceremonies in rural areas, and I have not had a chance to really study the differences. So that is the, the end of my talk, and I hope at the very beginning of my talk I said, well, I find this interesting because you see life, and I hope you agree with me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>